This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers show number 67, recorded on April 19th, 2022. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions or comments, you can always send us an email. Send that to me, Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv, although it's probably smarter to send it over to Christian. Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. He'll actually know what to do with the question. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Collison. Of course, track Christian down at Borg Whisperer. TheAverageGuy.tv, of course, powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting this platform here, uh, both Cyber Frontiers and Home Gadget Geeks, both hosted uh, there, maplegrovepartners.com. Check out plans still as little as $10 a month to get you started. Uh, and we say inflation fighting plans. And uh, check them out today, maplegrovepartners.com. Well, Christian's back with us. Christian, good to see you again. Welcome back to Cyber Frontiers. Yeah, thanks. Good to be back. Uh, looking forward to our conversation today and uh, our esteemed guests lined up. Yeah, why don't you take a second and introduce Franz? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll have to rely on you, Jim, to go back to the history books for the actual show number. But I believe somewhere within the first uh, dozen, um, we covered uh, the birth of a new company known as Cyber Skyline, um, a startup uh, co-founded by Franz Payer and Toby Lynn uh, at the University of Maryland and has been uh, taking off ever since. Um, and so Franz is CEO. Uh, we're excited to have him back on the show to talk about just the, the whole journey and evolution of the company. Catch us up from the last time um, we interviewed Cyber Skyline to understand their journey and kind of get into both some business aspects as well as um, some understanding of what the market demand really is for um, cyber education and training and kind of where they're taking that platform as the demand evolves. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. Uh, the the uh, the history tells me you are on uh, show twelve on November thirteenth, twenty fourteen. Goes wow. back a ways to that, <laughs> and I think we also had you on show fifty nine. I think we had you back on here to kind of catch up with you mm-hmm. on that. Um, give us a little bit, just as we're digging in, we'll have some new listeners to it. Give us a little bit of your background, if you would. I know you you and Christian were friends in school, but just if uh, we were meeting you for the first time, uh, introduce us to yourself. Wow. Okay. Well, we can go far back with this story. Um, so <laughs> back when I was a wee lad um, <laughs> in middle school, I, wa- I was uh, interested in learning to code. And so I went on Google and I was like, how do I build a website? And then in that journey, I realized you can break websites. Uh, and that that's what really got me interested in security. And so I spent time kind of in high school trying to learn how to hack websites. And um, I got an internship at a government contractor that was doing uh, IoT security before we called it IoT. So we were finding vulnerabilities in Wi-Fi routers and stuff like that. And just got really interested in, in cybersecurity. It's just, to me, it's just a big puzzle um, you know, you're trying to solve. And so went to college at the University of Maryland. That's where I met Christian and where I met my co-founder, Toby Lin. And uh, basically, you know, we were uh, in the cybersecurity program there and the students were trying to find ways to learn. 
uh, outside of the classroom. I mean, we learned some stuff in the classroom, but we wanted a little bit more. We wanted to hack stuff. And so we had the student-led effort to kind of train each other. And um, through that effort, I was like, oh, I should build a platform for uh, handling cyber challenges so we can practice these in our labs. And then um, at the same time, we're participating in uh, CTF, cybersecurity competitions. And we were seeing that a lot of those platforms were having issues. You know, the system would be down when you're supposed to ha have availability, right? Four hour event, two out of the four hours, the whole thing was down. And so spent my spring break freshman year building a prototype uh, environment to run cyber challenges. And that is the, the birth and the genesis of Cyber Skyline. And so, oh, there's our website right there. Um, so basically we built a platform for just doing little challenges for competitions and stuff. We ran one at the University of Maryland for about 120 people. And then we're like, well, what the heck do we do with this now? And so uh, we actually started getting paid to run cyber competitions for uh, organizations like the National Cyber League. And then it came time to graduate. And then we're like, actually we can take this little side project and make it a real business. And uh, that's when we started looking into what is the what is the business use case for something like this. And the thing that we identified in the market is that there's a lot of interest in cyber talent, you know, developing the talent, finding the talent. But what is really missing is the ability to measure and quantify talent. There's a lot of training programs out there that will teach you cybersecurity. There's not a lot of things out there that will help you measure your capabilities. And we found out that this is actually a really big problem at the hiring stage because most of the time you're looking at recruiters who don't have the technical background to properly evaluate candidates. And so they're just looking at resumes and sending people over to the, to the engineering team to interview people without a lot of background on whether these people are going to be successful or not. And that causes huge strain on those technical teams, interviewing people who just had nice looking resumes, but didn't actually have those skills. And so, we found a little niche here in terms of building skills assessments for uh, primarily students looking to get into the industry. They take the assessments, they build those skills, they can showcase their strengths, weaknesses, they get a report that they can show to employers. And then on the employer side, they can send out these assessments to candidates to evaluate their capabilities. And then even after they hire these people, uh, you want to validate, are they actually learning things? Are they able to keep up with today's threats? And so we have evaluations and assessments for existing teams. And so we kind of have these, the suite of products really geared towards evaluating measuring talent. Since, since you got the, the pandemic has been obviously a, a, a change for you. Well, let me mm -hmm. just let me ask that question. The last time we interviewed you, uh, you were on 59, which was uh, December 16th of 2019. And the whole the whole world <laughs> has changed right? Yeah. since then. As we think about if we kind of hyper focus into those this this pandemic time, did mm -hmm. much change for you? Did, did you? did you get busier? Did it create new opportunities for you? Can you talk a little bit about that? over the last two years? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID has been a very dynamic and uh, disruptive force in everyone's lives. For us, we saw basically two, or like three major trends happening. One was a disruption to the way, uh, to, to education, right? So we, we serve about 14,000 college kids every year uh, from about 650 colleges, universities. And typically, we work with faculty members who want to augment their club or their class. And what we saw during COVID was 
a lot of disruption with uh, schools canceling programs because of low enrollment. Um, we had instructors kind of moving around, switching jobs, uh, retiring early, stuff like that. Um, at the same time, we saw a pretty big uptake in uh, online education. So why pay for a in-person class when you can get a cheaper program online? And, and when COVID hit, every class was online anyway but the difference is if you're going if you're paying for an in-person school you're getting charged way more than an online school so we saw online picking up a lot um and then we saw a really really big uptake in um kind of like online hiring and so before a lot of hiring was done with career fairs on campuses, um, you know, next to conferences. And then all of that had to be fully like, you know, LinkedIn, Indeed. Um, that's the only way that people were hiring. And those kind of three trends kind of impacted us in very different ways in terms of like, how do we accommodate this environment, um, working with, with schools and students to help support them. But also on the employer side, they needed more and more tools to be able to measure talent. And that's a big component is that like, when you start hiring more online, the volume of just applicants and resumes that you have to look at goes up exponentially, right? If you're meeting people in person, it's a little bit more constrained, but online, there's no barriers. It's very easy to like one click apply for that job. And so employers are running to a lot of challenges with actually being able to identify, you know, who's the qualified candidate out of this pool of like hundreds or even thousands of candidates. Yeah, the the actual interviewing, which had tended to be in person or it was moving more that way, but it really gone a hundred percent online by the time we were done. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other trend that I saw um, in this is that all of a sudden, um, at the beginning of this year, twenty twenty two, there's just a burst of hiring. <laughs> like all of a sudden, everybody was like, you know, we kind of had the great resignation at the end of. 2021 and that's still kind of going on a little bit i don't think it's quite the force that it once was there's now kind of a great reshuffling that's happening but all of a sudden it seemed to me in january it was employers were like oh crap it's time to hire today in the hiring have you seen that same it's is the work that you're doing are you getting more or are you getting that sense that employers are are doing more work to hire now than maybe they were in 2021, especially in this area? And especially as many breaches as we've talked, Christian and I have talked about <laughs> over the last couple of years. Well, with cyber in particular, I can't say that I've been able to tell a huge difference between like a year ago from now, just because there's always been this huge push for hiring in cyber. With everyone switching to remote work during COVID, there was that constant demand for talent. I don't think that demand has really eased up, but um, definitely when we're looking at um, specific industries, I'd say like those cyber services industries, the MSSPs, um, they've definitely ramped up hiring, not I, I think because like things are reopening, but just because cyber is coming to the forefront of everyone's minds even more, right? Um, you know, with the with the whole log4j vulnerability that came out last year that was so prevalent and then now with uh, the situation with Russia and Ukraine making everyone on high alert with cyber attacks um it's just been such a, a big component of everyone's lives i think that's been the biggest driver rather than like trends with like reopening with covid 
Yeah, it's good, good insight on that. Let me ask one more question. I'll let Christian jump in on this one. You and Jeremy, of course, started this. Talk a little bit about the growth of the company. How are you guys feeling about that? What are some, how has it grown? How has it changed? And what have, maybe, maybe what have you learned through the process? Yeah, so, um, so well, I think you meant uh, Toby. So Toby and I, uh, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah we, so we, it, it's, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting journey. I mean, we started started the, the company out in the dorm room and then we graduated and we, uh, you know, we were living in the same apartment after college. And then um, I think for, I mean, for the first two years out of college, it was just the two of us trying to hustle and build this company and figure out like, how the heck do you actually take a cool project and get someone to pay money for the thing that you have? Um, and it took us two years to figure that out. Um, and then and then what we saw then was kind of a, a need to shift from how do we get people to pay money for this thing that we built to how do we actually build a cohesive team? I mean, for the longest time, it was the two of us just doing everything by ourselves. Um, I remember like, you know, we were we were flying out to conferences while running, like giving a talk while running a CTF at the same time. And then immediately after that conference, we'd go and run another CTF. I mean, we were pulling <laughs> pulling a lot of all-nighters and like, there are a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of long hours um, doing that, and then um, then we started growing a team, and the the framework and the 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 way that you approach like the operations of your business really really differ when it's just you and and one other person versus you know we have a team of six now, and so like figuring out okay how do we actually um, define different roles. How do we figure out who's responsible for what? How do we build policies and procedures? Right. I think this has just been a very interesting um, learning experience, especially like you know, this is kind of the the first thing we're doing out of college. It's not like we've been working a lot of different corporate environments and have been able to observe how things are done. We're kind of figuring that figuring it out on the fly. We're like, that doesn't work. We got to stop doing that. We got to do a new thing. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like it's just been a never ending, like constant learning experience. And I feel like we've, there's like a lot of small things that businesses uh, do where if you're in that environment, you kind of take it for granted. But when you're the person that's responsible for implementing the normal like structure and policies, it's not, it, you know, it doesn't automatically happen. You, there's thought and energy that has to be put into putting those mm -hmm. in place. And that was very eye opening for me. <laughs> Benefits, payroll, uh, HR yes. functions, taxes, right? All those kinds of things. You know, you guys are on the East Coast, but you, you know, I, I think a lot of folks think startups only happen in Silicon Valley. Do you, mm -hmm. do you, do you guys see yourselves as, as acting like a Silicon Valley startup or is there a East Coast vibe that's, that's kind of its own thing? Well, I definitely think we have an East Coast vibe for like it, when it comes to startups, basically West coast companies are like, we're going to grow 10 X next year, or we're going to die trying. And, uh, you know, that's not the mentality that we have. We have a much more sustainable approach to like growth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a different culture, right? I mean, when you go out to Silicon Valley, you get a, a venture capital firm that'll throw like $10 million at your company. And they're like, either you're going to be a billion dollar company or you're going to die next month. And mm -hmm. it, you know, for us, um, we're not really here to like be the next billion dollar company. We're here to make an impact. Right. And so kind of, we have this philosophy of, um, you know, we are trying to 
to be a positive force in society and we'll get compensated if we're successful in doing that. But we're not setting arbitrary metrics for ourselves to say, hey, we got to do it in two years or we got to quit because uh, we got to make the return on capital for the for the investors. I like it. I like that thought, that thinking. Christian, you've watched this from the outside and have seen it from the very beginning. Any before you ask a few questions, any thoughts and, and things that you've seen that have been interesting or that they've done well since the beginning? Yeah, it's been really cool. Um, I think one of the biggest success stories out of the company so far has been its transformation of NCL, right? So um, the software platform that ran NCL originally had uh, a constrained set of resources, a particular way of running those CTFs that gave the players and kind of the user experience a particular set of expectations and really, you know, seeing the opportunity for something better or something different to be brought in and then just slowly working that over time to the point where, you know, they weren't just a contractual provider for NCL, but that, you know, they're running annually NCL um, and really owning it um, is a really great example of working backwards from that customer experience to find um, how to delight your customer, right? Just a, a kind of a classic tenant. So, um, I think working backwards from the CTF high school college experience is a very interesting way to be informed about a segment of the cyber um, training and education marketplace. But clearly what's been cooler to watch is how quickly the company has pivoted, you know, away from just doing the CTFs, right? Like the CTF is a critical component, very important customer base a lot of what has developed and matured the initial software offering. But um, when you get into, you know, a lot of the training and assessment capabilities that really takes it into a new dimension that I don't think was conceived of initially when cyber skyline was born as kind of like this ability to have a um, next generation platform for cyber competitions. So it's interesting to see how quickly the company has evolved um, even in the last um, eight or so years. Why don't you dig in with a couple questions? Yeah. Um, so Franz, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, one of the comments early on in the show that caught my attention was, um, you know, your statement that um, a lot of your more recent product line is focusing on this challenge of how do you actually measure and assess cyber talent, but talk to mm -hmm. us about what that balance is in your company between the focus on training the talent and up-leveling skills versus being able to measure and identify talent. Because I think sometimes we like to lump it as the same thing, but they're pretty distinct um, markets, customer needs, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something that this is definitely something we we learned um, as we were transforming the company. I mean, originally we thought, oh, we're going to be like our, our thought when we graduated college is we're going to be a company where what we do is we take the latest breaches and we're going to train companies on how to go through and handle those breaches. And we're going to measure them as they go through it. And uh, what we discovered is that. Um, there is a huge marketplace out there for training 
And there's a lot, like if you go and you type in cybersecurity training, you're going to find like dozens of vendors. And then if you go and you search in the, uh, go in Google search and you say cybersecurity assessments, there's a much, much smaller group out there. I mean, I think the number of serious players in that space is probably like four or five. There really are not very many players in that space. And so when we started by trying to do everything, we're like, we realized we didn't really have any differentiation. Because if you go into that space and say, hey, I can help you do training, it's like, well, how are you any different than the dozen other companies out there who also, by the way, have been here for way longer, they're way more resourced, and uh, you know they have that reputation where I trust them a little bit more. And it's like, yeah, there's no way you can really compete in that space. And so we specifically look at this niche of uh, assessments. And so there's a lot of companies will, which will say, okay, we have the curriculum. Here's like course material. Here are video training videos. Here are like guided labs to help you learn the, the content. But then very, it, it's very uncommon that a company will actually measure the impact, the efficacy of that training. So they'll say, hey, we spent, you know, one, two thousand, three thousand dollars, sometimes, you know, five, six, seven thousand dollars on this training for this individual. That's our training budget spent for the year. We're we're good and we're done. And they don't really know if that was effective until a breach happens. And then you find out whether it was effective or not. Well, it turns out that's a terrible way to figure out whether your training was effective. Um, and so that's why we were looking at like, okay, well, you do the training, we can come in and provide the assessment. And a bigger component as well is with the hiring. And so uh, that's like the big, big spot that we we um, saw there being like a, a huge opportunity. Because if you look at training, a lot of companies already have training budgets figured out. There isn't a huge like pain point which would cause someone to change the training budget. If you're already using a provider, what's your incentive to change? Probably not much. I mean, maybe if you have a breach and then you're like, okay, we weren't prepared for that, then we change. Um, there's not much out there, but when it comes to measuring talent, uh, that's something where you, I basically can go to any major cybersecurity company and say, how overloaded is your team on the, uh, from the recruiting side and how overloaded is your team from the engineering side doing those interviews? And that's the pain point that I can, I can help with. Uh, it's harder to do that, with just training. And so if help me understand a little bit further the pivot right so you're it sounds like your predominant product line that that insight and discovery um was you know let the corporations do the training that they see as best fit for um their enterprise and then let our tool kind of measure and assess the efficacy of that training is that a accurate characterization of where it's evolving or is that one of several modes in which you're trying to support I, I I mean I'd say generally like we never describe ourselves as a uh we're not a training provider. I mean we do training in the sense that like if you take the PSAT you're preparing for the SAT, but like it's an assessment that you're you, that you're learning from as you go through that assessment. Um, but you know companies aren't coming to us because they're like hey um, you know we we need to train our uh, our employees on web application security. Um, we're not going to be able to kind of take your, your, your employees from knowing nothing to becoming an expert in web application security. What we can do is put them through a battery and say, Hey, here are the concepts that your employees don't know. And then you can go to one of many different training providers 
and then learn that from them and then come back and say, do another assessment and evaluate how effective was that training? Did that actually help, uh, help prepare your team? And so like if we were to take the CTFs, for example, in the competitions that the company has the ability to run, do you see that in the bucket of um, it's another kind of assessment tool that's available to corporations and organizations, or is it in its own category? I think it's the same thing. Um, actually, you know, we have those three product lines that you can see on the website. There's the competitions that we run for students. There's the assessments that we run for hiring. And then there's our enterprise offering, which we, you know, we do CTFs internally for, for companies. At the end of the day, it's an assessment. And the, the way that you deliver it, if it's a CTF, that's just the way that you package it. Um, and so what we find is that if you basically just give assessments to employees, uh, just standalone, it's not a fun thing. It's not very interesting. But if you say, hey, we're going to take out, you know, an afternoon or a whole day, and it's going to be a competitive event, and we're going to have a leaderboard, and maybe we have some fun prizes, and it's it's a fun thing that we're all doing together, the engagement and the satisfaction is much higher than someone solo doing an assessment by themselves. And so we say it's an assessment, but we package it as a fun competitive team building exercise. And um, you know, we learned this from looking at other competitors who offer basically a subscription model where they say, hey, pay an annual amount and you get access to these, this material. And what happens is no one ever uses it uh, because there's no motivation, no incentive for you to go and do it. And we can say, hey, we are doing a, a single day assessment and now everyone's having fun doing it. Um, and so like it, at the end of the day, it's like the exact same material, but the way that you package it makes a huge difference in terms of the impact that you have. Um, and so, yeah, to answer your original question, I'd say like, it's the same thing. It's just how you package it. Franz, has there been any size, uh, I think about organizational size and mm -hmm. if I'm a smaller organization, is it harder to have three to five people doing these competitions against each other versus maybe in a large organization, you've got 25 or 30. Does that matter? Or, or... Are you, are you yeah. asking about kind of the... You, in using your tool uh, to do this, if I have an mm. organization that's smaller, is that any, is that, does that hamper it any more or less than if it's a large organization and, and maybe I've got, I'm engaging 25 or 30 in this as opposed to just five or five or six? No, there isn't a, a difference in terms of like the impact there and the getting it all set up with a small versus large organization. I'd say definitely larger organizations are the one that are ones that are a little bit more, they typically have budgets kind of set aside for these types of things. Typically small organizations, they don't have a, um, they don't have a budget for, for a lot of these things. It's kind of like ad hoc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's some point at the end of the day, you got to pay for it. Right. Uh, Kevin Schoonover out in the chat says, like several other areas, I think cybersecurity professionals really need an education refresher every three to five <laughs> years. Do you agree? Is it three to five or could it be even less than that? I would say it's probably actually a little bit sooner than that. I mean, I'm trying to think about the technologies that we're using like five years ago and so much has changed, right? I mean, in the past five years, we had a huge shift towards containerization um, across the tech stack, right? So Five years ago, I think VMs were a lot more prevalent. Now you've got all this discussion about like Kubernetes and, and containerization and, and also 
the, a huge push to cloud, right? I mean, there's a lot more emphasis on, and Christian could probably speak more to this as well, of like, how do you get on-prem appliances into the cloud and how do you configure everything to make sure it's secure? Um, one of the biggest demands that we see from uh, employers are questions about, well, how do I make sure my employees know how to configure cloud services to be secure? Um, that is something that has only been happening in the past, I'd say three years where that's been the big question. Um, and so a refresher, probably sooner it would be necessary. You probably don't want to be waiting to be uh, uh, at the end of the uh, adoption curve there. Looking forward, Franz, what do you see as the kind of next hockey stick or next growth curve for your company to undertake in the next three years? That's a that's a great question. So right now we are kind of on the um, we're kind of we're we're kind of building a lot of infrastructure to get this like magical moment in place where um, on the one end we've been working with you know I mentioned all the schools all those students who are going through these assessments and they're demonstrating their skills um, and at the other end we work with employers so. We have students taking assessments for their own benefit, so they know their strengths and weaknesses. And we have employers using assessments for um, for measuring the candidates in the pipeline. Now, we want to merge the two together because what we want to avoid is a dystopian future where every time you apply for a job, you have to like take a two-hour assessment because that's just such a negative experience. I mean, think about all the jobs that you end up applying to, um, and to get an interview, if you have to take like a two-hour assessment, it's just not a not a great experience. And so. Um, the big growth is going to occur when we get more employers comfortable with the idea of using this assessment as their as their source for talent. Uh, and so when they're actually able to tap into our, our talent pipeline and say, hey, I'm looking for people with this expertise. I'm like, great. We already vetted that out when they were in, in school. So they don't even need to take an extra assessment. They took it as part of their classwork. And then now they're going to apply for a job. We can we can plug them in right into their uh, into their hiring process, and what happens is they're getting candidates where they're not even looking at the resumes anymore. Why look at the resume when you know that this is someone who can perform uh, a task? And so the employers are able to hire much more rapidly. They spend a lot less time digging through all the weeds, and then at the same time, the students have a quick quick avenue into the workforce. And this is like the big thing that we hear about the talent shortage um, where, you know, employers are saying, hey, there's not enough qualified talent out there. It's not actually the case that there's a shortage. The problem with hiring is that it's hard to find the talent. Not that the talent's not there. It's just hard to find the talent. And it's because when you put up a job application or when you put up a job rec online, you get 300 applicants and you don't know who the heck out of the 300 people are the one that you want to hire. And um, you, what you really need as an employer are, is better tools to identify those qualified candidates. And then that's when you, the job, the, 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 the talent shortage is no longer a problem because right now, artificially, employers are saying, hey, we need to put you know, two, three, four years of experience as a limiting factor so that we don't have to actually carefully review 300 people because that's too much. If I put that requirement on there, it's going to narrow it down. And then... I only have to look for a handful of people. Well, the problem now is you have the shortage artificially. And so this is kind of the next big hockey stick is when we're able to kind of meld the two aspects of the business and get employers bought into this concept of 
you know, reducing their job requirements and sourcing talent directly from these assessments where they're able to see exactly what skills people have rather than how many years of job experience they see on their resume. Franz, does that look like a cyber skyline certification? In other words, (laughs) I graduate and you're going to certify me with a certain set of skills that employers could take a sheet and say, okay, here's what I'm looking for. How does that, how do, how do you operationalize that? So I, we, we try to stay away from the verbs, uh, the word certification, because <laughs> like I, uh, certifications are for the most part, a single point in time, and maybe you get recertified, but they're measuring your capability at, at, at a point in time. Um, we, I mean, we, we call it a performance report. I think maybe a more comfortable term people are used to is like a badge. And so we, we can say we have a badge and we can say, hey, you're the top 10% in this discipline. So maybe you're in the top 10% of, um, of forensics analysts or you're the top 10% of pen testers. And so we're able to give these badges which aren't demonstrating a single point in time. Um, and more importantly, they're relative to the population because being able to pass the hurdle in cyber is not enough. You have to be better than your adversary. And so be able, to be able to say that, hey, you pass these minimum requirements, here's a certification, that's important for a lot of people. It's important for government contractors and the government where those are their compliance requirements associated with that. But when it actually comes to identifying talent, you want the context. You want to know, hey, um, this is someone who has developed skills which makes them above average. And you want to be able to find those people very quickly. Um, and so that's kind of what we kind of see as the iteration of, of just like, hey, the employers can be able to see a badge um, indicating this person's performance in a discipline. And it's not a single point in time. It's like, this is how well they perform currently. And it's it's compared to our entire user-based, entire population. Mm. Franz, do you see that for only grads or could I be a five year, could I be, you know, out, um, you know, out doing that job for five years and still have that from you? That's a great question. I mean, right now it's mainly focused on, um, on like new, new grads and the new entrance into the industry. That is something that would be kind of like a future iteration. The, the thing that's holding us back right now is like, there's no need for it, right? So the, the, the situation is, if you have five years of, of job experience, you don't need a badge to get a job. Like, it's really easy for you to get a job. And so like, what's the what's the incentive for you to go through that effort to uh, to perform those, to, to demonstrate those skills? I'm sure there's a lot of people who do it for fun and we're happy to have those people on our platform. But in terms of like making that a formal pipeline, um, there just isn't a huge demand for it, right? If you if you got yeah. the, those that the five years of experience, any employer is happy to have you. I, was, I guess I was kind of thinking, or just as I'm thinking on the fly here, maybe a business analyst or somebody who is making a jump from existing, you know, they they got into IT and they've got this interest mm-hmm. in cybersecurity and they want to make a transition. They don't have it on their resume, they're, but they're not ah, college yeah. anymore, right? Because we're going to have to convert I mean, I think we're going to have to convert some additional IT folks into this field um, <laughs> as well to make it work. So kind of more in your right. I mean, if you're in the if you're already in it, you probably don't that that you're going to you're going to be just fine thinking about those folks that are maybe transitioning. 
Yeah. And, and so with those people in particular, I think we've been very um, open about our definition of what we consider kind of a, a student or like a learner. So our, our definition of like our core demographic is not just uh, people who are, you know, in, in college. We're also looking at people who are in apprenticeship programs. We're also looking at people, if you're transitioning, um, you are likely, you know, going through some sort of boot camp or you're going back and you're getting a, an additional degree um you know community college as well and so it's not just actually like about um about 30 to 40 percent of our user base would be considered people who are in that transitioning category people who are uh switching from it into cyber people who are transitioning from the military those veterans um who are kind of meeting our definition of our core demographic so yeah I, my, my comments are kind of geared towards if you're already working in cyber do you need to do you need this badge probably not but for those transitioning people, yeah, those are definitely part of our core demographic. Christian, what else? Franz, I'm curious as you look at the evolving, um, you know, threat landscape, the volume and proportion of zero days and, and new, um, you know, attempts or kind of tradecraft in uh, exploitation that just continue to um, evolve at a very rapid pace. What do you think that pretends for the kind of training and um, assessment industry? Uh, and how, how do we, how do we shorten the gap between um, you know, training in a given subject area and making it applicable to new either new fields within cybersecurity that emerge or even just kind of new classes of vulnerabilities that emerge. Um, you know, I think of um, Spectre and Meltdown, obviously, as a good example of kind of a new class of attacks on systems. Um, obviously, if you're in the cybersecurity industry um, and have that background, you could at least, um, you know, analyze, understand it, um learn how to defend against it um like is that enough um how, how do we make the actual tools and systems tell us um where the gaps are beyond what i call textbook knowledge which is like you know recall mm -hmm. like i can teach someone a wasp top 10 or i can teach someone sql injections right but um moving past kind of textbook knowledge into that critical analysis and thinking in cybersecurity, like is, is there ever going to be software training simulations, et cetera, that can really take someone from nothing to that level of expertise? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think that definitely when it comes to building those fundamentals, um, we're, 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 pretty much there. I mean, there's so many resources out there to build those fundamentals. To that part where it comes to, you know, new exploits and zero days and how do you quickly respond to those situations? Um, it's tricky because in terms of actually taking the uh, vulnerability, the exploit and building the training material to prepare people to address that threat, um, that gap has been closed. I mean, we have we've taken stuff like log4j and you can 
in several hours or several uh, days, you can actually build a lab environment where you've got the vulnerability in there, you've got a series of questions, you can simulate that attack, and you can simulate how are you going to defend against that attack. It's not a technical limitation. It's actually more of an operational limitation in terms of like, how are you operationally going to pull away your team of security analysts to spend the time to prepare for this? And you have organizations where that is their core focus, right? You go to an MSSP, you go to like the CrowdStrikes of the world. And I talked to the people on the CrowdStrike team, like when they had Log4j come out by the next day, you know, internally, they've already built those processes and systems to be prepared. So all of their employees know how to address that threat. Where it really becomes an issue is when you talk about the mom and pop shops, when you're talking about the IT teams, which are way less resource, right? You go to grocery chains, you go to uh, manufacturing companies, companies where they're not traditionally tech companies. They are going to struggle quickly adapting to that um, because they just don't have the structure in place to support it. Um, and I don't know. I don't know how you because uh, this is not a problem where you, you magically build a technology and you'll solve all your problems. Like I said, the technology is already there. We have, you know, we, we, we do that ourselves. We've got competitors who've got it even faster than we do. It's not how fast you can build the training material. It's how fast can you muster your team to prepare for it? And how do you make sure they don't get overexerted and overextended? I mean, these vulnerabilities, these breaches happen regularly, right? And so, you know, you're, you you could be going week to week with another one of these incidents and it can burn out your team very quickly. And so um, really what we try to do is we try to emphasize and focus on the fundamentals so that when new breaches occur, there's enough knowledge of the fundamentals where people can adapt to those new, 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 new threats, new vulnerabilities without having to have like a multi-hour training course put in front of them, you know, while they're in the middle of panic mode, um, they they kind of naturally know what they should be doing. And then when things are a little bit more relaxed, they can go through and figure out if there's anything else that they missed. But I think the like the last thing that you want to do is have a new threat come out and say, hold on, we don't know how to re respond to this. We have to go through a three-hour training first. Like you never want that to be the case. You are absolutely hosed if that's the case. Um, and so it's about building those fundamentals, and then you're going to have that training available for those organizations where, like, you know, the primary business is supporting a bunch of other customers, and they need that little that additional specialization, that additional training, and that's going to that's going to be necessary in those cases. But I think by and large, when you're looking at most organizations, um, they just don't have, it, it's just not, it's not going to work for them to like constantly train up on new vulnerabilities. It just doesn't work. Interesting. Fra Franz yeah. on your, on your, Oh, did you want to follow up with that Christian? No, I'm digesting it. It's a pretty insightful uh, response. So Go for it, Jim. On your website, you've got uh, you got an events tab, and you've got mm -hmm. some where, where you're listing some events. As you think about some of the things, some of your most successful events, mm -hmm. what are they for you guys? What What do you feel like you do best, and what are the best kind of <laughs> events that you do? Ah, that's a great question. Um, so 
I I think the best events for us, the ones where we're making the most impact, are um, these events where we're working with uh, with employers. So I, you, you're scrolling through right now. You see the CypherTech Challenge and the CrowdStrike Cyber Challenge. We did a little bit. We did one uh, further back with uh, Lockheed Martin. And so for us, the big impacts that we make are when we're running events, we're really bringing together the talent with the employers. And so right now, you know, when we've run a lot of these events, what's happening is you've got a prize, you've got students participating, they just want to, they're doing it for fun. And at the end of it, they're getting job opportunities, right? And so people who are going through that CrowdStrike challenge, they're actively being considered for for entry-level positions at CrowdStrike. And to us, that's where we make the most impact. I, I personally measure our success based on how many lives we're able to touch. And then if we can get more specific about that, it's how many careers can we make? And it's, it's a little bit more difficult for us to measure that somehow, uh, sometimes. Like sometimes we don't hear when, you know, we don't always hear from employers, hey, we hired people uh, because of this assessment, or we don't necessarily hear from the students when they tell us, hey, I got a job. Um, a lot of that is anecdotal. It's, it's harder to get in the metrics. But when we run events like those joint uh, challenges with CrowdStrike, we know that's where we're making the most impact because we know that those winners are really being considered for those positions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are getting hired because they're able to demonstrate their skills. I know you'd be dying to get that feedback uh, two, three years down the line, right? How did those winners do? And mm-hmm. it'd almost be great if you had a feedback cycle where you could go back to them and say, and be able to measure what was it about those winners. And maybe some of them didn't make it very long in the organization. And what was the, what was the profile or the talent that was there that helped them to make it long-term or, or, or not? However, you've also, speaking of that, you also have, um, let me pop this up here. You've also got a job directory. I'm assuming these are organizations, are these organizations that has come to you to post openings on your site or, or what are we looking at here? Yeah, so we have a mix of um, employers who work with us as well as um, we are actively trying to find entry-level positions to post on here because we know how tough it is for uh, students to get that first um that first internship or job out of college. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's what, what we're looking at here. Um, and our next st- stage in this evolution is basically, like right now, this is just a directory for people to get connected to those jobs. But the next stage is actually taking your profile from our system and feeding that directly to the recruiters. Uh, right now, that is a manual process. So we give the individuals their data and they will go and submit that to employers and we want to streamline that process where it happens kind of automatically you mentioned this when you came in Um, one of the things that i think changed pretty drastically uh over the pandemic was the power of linkedin and handshake yes in in right i mean just um you know, just coming to the forefront, um, indeed, it would be other would be the third one that mm-hmm. I would add in that, right? Um, do you think there would be some opportunities to integrate in with their systems to, from a hiring standpoint, to get us to get a standard? I mean, all employers know those platforms mm-hmm. inside now, right? From that perspective, any thought to partnering with those those platforms themselves to make that happen? 
Yeah, I mean, I think whenever I talk to recruiters in the space, it's always about like, hey, I'm using five different platforms to do my 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 uh, my hiring. It would be great to have them all together. Um, we are definitely uh, working to integrate with um, different platforms. I don't know if LinkedIn or uh, Indeed are like those are job directories. They typically don't directly integrate with a lot of uh, organizations like us, like they want, they want to own their assessments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, yeah. and so they'll integrate with an applicant tracking system, uh, where, you know, you can go to indeed and export your candidates into your tracking mm-hmm. system and then we'll integrate with the tracking system. Right. So if you're using a, uh, a platform to help you track all your candidates, ha- having the ability to automatically click a, click a button and invite someone to take an assessment, that's kind of what where we're focusing on. Um, because yeah, like Indeed and LinkedIn, they both have their own set of assessments. And I will say, like, there's a huge difference between like those multiple choice assessments that you get on Indeed and LinkedIn versus like actually measuring someone's capability. I've seen some of those assessments. It's like hypothetically in this situation, what would you do? Option A, option B, option C, option D, and then you can kind of just guess what the answer is. And then we're actually having people perform a task like, hey, analyze this breach and tell me, you know what's the IP address of the hacker and what, what version of software is vulnerable and um, what data was exfiltrated, right? Like actually having people perform those tasks rather than answer those theoretical questions, you know, it, it's, it, it's not the same thing. Very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, you're right. Uh, from that, as that goes, there's, there's a big difference there. Christian, we got just a few minutes left. Uh, anything you want to wrap this with questions? Um, no, honestly, uh, that gives me a, a pretty good perspective. I actually kind of want to bounce the question to Franz though. Like, are there things or aspects of uh, either the company or the, or the work that, um, that you all are doing that you feel like, uh, we didn't get a chance to touch on in the show? Um, no, I think we kind of covered it. I think for me, if I could, uh, there's like one thing I could I could talk about to it uh, like with employers. It's like really um, really consider like your your hiring practices and figure out whether you are optimizing against your benefit. Because I I've seen a lot of employers trying to do things to make it easier for them to hire. And it actually ends up becoming ineffective. And I, I alluded to this a little bit, talking about how you know adding years of job, ex, uh, like you, like two, two, three years of job experience as a requirement um, is a shortcut. And what ends up happening is, you know, I think years of job experience is it's not an indicator of capability. It's an indicator of age more than anything else like you know that someone has been working for several years you don't know how well they were doing that job and of course on their resume they're going to say they were doing an amazing job um and so eliminating people just based on that alone is um optimizing against your interests and so really what it comes down to is asking yourself are we adding these job requirements um because they are actually necessary or are we adding this to try to save time because when you try to say if you're trying to optimize for time and you're hiring it's the wrong thing you need to be optimizing for hiring the right person you hire the wrong person but you save a lot of time doesn't do you any good and i think it's very very easy to fall into that bias 
where you're like, well, of course, this is an experienced position. You have to have X many years of job experience uh, in, in order to, to do this job. And I, I would I would question, you know, well, remove the years of job experience. What does this person actually need to know how to do? And how can you optimize your measurement of that capability, right? We've seen employers um, use their own in-house assessments. Some of them come to us to help them with those assessments. They come up with some creative ways of doing that. I mean, we've seen employers look at people's GitHubs or, um, you know, different different portfolios, different ways of like identifying if those skills exist. But um, what I think is really hindering the industry is saying, hey, you need this, these years of job experience because it doesn't allow the talent pool to expand. The only time you expand the talent pool is when you hire someone out of college. If you hire someone who already has experience, you're just recycling the existing talent pool and you're just perpetuating the challenge that we have with finding that great talent. And so, um, you know, like, again, question, are you optimizing for your time? Are you optimizing for a great hire? And what you need to do is figure out that sweet spot. How do we, how do we measure who has the capabilities in a time efficient manner? Because I think interviewing all 300 people applying for your position is not the way to solve it. You have to have some sort of measurement that's actually doing that. And that, that measurement has to be time efficient. And the resume screen is a super poor way of doing it. And then, you know, corollary with the resume screen are, are those requirements of the job experience. Franz, well said. I, I think I agree with you. Being on the other end of this as, as an individual, you know, as an organization that was trying to do the same thing, not just, we say, stealing each other's sheep, right? From that standpoint, like <laughs> actually creating new talent that goes in, right? And a lot of our talent, you know, was stolen by others as well. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, it's it, through internships, it was a great opportunity uh, for for us to do that, give it a try, train some things into them, and then get that done. This, in in a lot of ways, is like a way of assessing your interns, right? Assessing mm -hmm. these new these new hires um, uh, coming out. Can you, if you if you had a couple employers that you wanted to highlight that are doing this really really well with you guys, who who are those be best practice partners that you might have? So I I will say kind of our number one employer is CrowdStrike. I mean, they've been um, a great, great partner with, I mean, they're a customer of ours, but I consider them a partner because I think the way that they're approaching hiring is really, um, really pioneering in the industry. So we work really, really closely with their university recruiting team. And they, you know, when we talk about dealing with the volume of candidates, they are dealing with volume. <laughs> like I can't give specific numbers, but like, they tell me that they actually are hesitant to put up uh, certain job positions because it takes them forever to go through and look at all the applicants. They're just such a big name and they, they are really emblematic of this challenge of like, how do we actually find who's talented out of this huge sea of candidates? And we're talking not hundreds, but we're talking about thousands of candidates for a single mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. And um, they realize that the resume is not a good tool for finding talent. And so, they work with us. They work with a. Uh, they actually work with like three other different companies that provide assessments to measure that talent. We help them a lot with the cyber side, and they have some other partners to help them more with like coding skills and stuff like that. Um, but they actually, you know, they go through and they look at um, 
they, they, they actively consider all the candidates, right? So if you have like a hard requirement that you don't meet on the resume, that's basically the thing that will get you eliminated. But if you, if you pass any of those hard requirements, then you actually go through one of these assessments. So you're considered like everyone else. Um, it's great that way because I, I, it's a great way to remove bias from the equation. You have people who, no matter what school they went to, whether it's a, uh, whether it's like a big brand name university or a smaller state school that uh, might not be very well known, you have that opportunity to demonstrate your capability. And so I think they're doing a really good job of balancing the fact that like there's a huge sea of people, they have to be extremely time efficient and they also have to be using using objective measurements. You can't just be finding people who look good on paper because they might turn they might not turn out in reality. And um, yeah, I, I I love that their internship program. Uh, I think the way that they're approaching culture and talent is just uh, a, a great a great example for the industry. I even heard that they have a 401k program for their interns. So <laughs> like that, uh, like I can, I can never speak uh, well, oh, highly enough of uh, the way that they're approaching talent. No, that's, that's, that's great. If individuals want to get more information, of course they can check out cyberskyline.com. Christian, any final thoughts as we wrap this? No, I really appreciate Franz coming on, take the time to talk about uh, Cyber Skyline and, and where it's headed and um, very cool to see. Thanks Franz, Franz, yeah. congratulations. Uh, you know, we had you on uh, 14, so eight years ago. We had you on yeah. two years ago. And uh, and it's great to see this continue to grow and build and excited to see what you guys are doing. And uh, I just get I get super pumped up every time I I, uh, I see what you guys are doing. I'm glad uh, it made it out of its out of its, you know, infancy stage at uh, University of Mar Maryland at College Park. Christian, we just hired somebody from from College Park. There, right job. they actually they actually came to Omaha. International students, so it's a little easier to get them to come to Omaha uh, as opposed to dragging some folks from the East Coast out there. But uh, always great. I have very fond memories of hanging out with you guys uh, on campus. It was a special time. And so, Franz, thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks thanks for having me again. And maybe next time I'll have some more gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope not. You, you've got uh, you got some good looking hair going on there. Franz, hang tight for me one sec. We'll just remind everyone, of course, the average guy.tv powered by Maple Grove Partners. If you need a place to get your website going, uh, and Christian's got it optimized for WordPress. So if you want to do that and podcast, whatever you want to do, check it out, maplegrovepartners.com. We we're live now once a month, every I think we're saying every third Tuesday. You want to follow me on Twitter at Jake Allison, we'll announce it uh, out there. And uh, you can stay up to date with everything that's going on. Um, you can, if you want to send us an email, if you got some show ideas or you got some show questions, Christian would love to answer them. Christian at theaverageguy.tv. Don't send them to me because I, I don't have what I just, I just talk for a living. I want to thank you for joining us out here on Cyber Frontiers for 67. We'll be back with 68 next month. Thanks for coming out. We're not say goodbye. Okay.